You know, in every human heart, there is a desire for things to turn out. We want to know how things are going to turn out. In fact, a week ago Saturday, two policemen met me at my front door, and I met them with a knife in my hand. But I'm not going to tell you how the story turns out until the end, because that's my point. We all want to know how things turn out. What happened there? What's going to happen there? As we come into the book of Philippians, we discover a man named Paul, a Jewish Roman citizen, a tent maker, who's writing about joy and how to have joy in different circumstances. But what were his circumstances? How did he grow up? What was it like for him to live in prison? Let me take you back for a moment before we jump into the passage. A little bit of a timeline. It's 530 B.C. The Babylonians have just conquered Jerusalem. Over the last 70 years. There's no temple anymore. So now, in order to learn about God, synagogues have been set up. Learning centers where 10 Jewish men would get together. They would afford the money for the scrolls. And now, people all over the kingdom, Gentiles and Jews, could learn the scriptures. And these synagogues got spread all over the world. About 500 B.C., the Roman Republic is formed. Now, it hasn't conquered the world yet. Still, the Persians will be in charge. And then the Greeks with Alexander the Great. But the Romans are slowly growing. To the point at which they take over. When the Romans are now in charge, the Maccabees form a revolt. They try and revolt against the Roman occupiers. And they fail. Which makes the Romans very serious about any revolutionaries are going to be crushed and crucified. Because Rome wants you to know you never mess with Rome. Well, right after the Maccabee revolt, the Pharisees, who we often think of as the bad guys of the Bible, but they weren't all bad. The Pharisees were a group of God-following, Scripture-following folks who became very evangelistic during this period, and they began to set up these synagogues that started back in the Babylonian days all over the kingdom, all over the world, all over the area. Wherever they could find ten men to afford the scrolls, they would set up a synagogue. One of those synagogues was set up in Tarsus. So there in Tarsus was a synagogue where people could learn the Scriptures. Meanwhile... At 50 B.C., Mark Anthony, he uh, sort of rises to power in the Roman Empire, and he sets up Tarsus as the sort of eastern capital of the Roman Empire. And with that, lots and lots of soldiers get moved there. Commerce is needed. All of a sudden, supplies are needed. And one of the things those, those soldiers need is tents. And all of a sudden, somebody's got to provide those tents to them. Now, keep in mind, if you were Jewish, you did not, Jews weren't Roman citizens. The only way to get a Roman citizenship is either to be born into it, with a lot of money, be able to afford it, or to have it gifted to you. So keep that in mind. We're at 50 B.C. Now, Paul's born somewhere around zero, and he'll live to somewhere around 60. And Paul introduces us to himself as Paul, his name was Saul, turned to Paul. He was a Jewish Roman citizen. He's born a Roman citizen. Well, how did he get that? In order to be born a Roman citizen, that meant his dad or grandfather had to already be one. He also tells us that he is a a tent maker, which means he probably learned the trade of his father or grandfather. Which means it's quite, quite plausible that it was his grandfather or his father that provided the tents to Mark Anthony. In Tarsus, which was a place of great affluence and great, great uh, influence as well, and probably it was either that business that made him incredibly wealthy, Paul's father or grandfather, 
Or he had such an in with Mark Anthony, Mark Anthony gifted him a Roman citizenship, so much so that his son or grandson could be born a Roman citizen. Well, that means that Paul grew up in a city that was known for a lot of fame, a lot of influence, a lot of luxury. He grew up amongst kings and judges, amongst rulers, amongst the the sophisticated elites of his day. In fact, we even know, because Paul tells us that he was trained under Gamaliel. This would be like going to Oxford and getting the best sought-after teacher in Oxford. He had a private education. The most luxurious, elite education. He grew up in comfort and luxury. And that is why it is so stunning that somebody who grew up in such luxury, with such influence and affluence, can now be sitting in a jail cell and say, I have learned to be content in any and all situations. He didn't go from lower class to jail. He didn't go from middle class to jail. He went from the upper crust to sacrificing it all for the cause of Christ. And he shares with us his secret here in Philippians. His secret to doing this. He says, our joy, (coughs) our joy in what turns out in life is determined by what we want turned out. Our joy in what turns out is really determined by what you want turned out. And for me, when I think about what I want turned out, it's usually what I want is my joy to go up, meaning my circumstances to get better and my pain to go down. So what I want is more comfort, less pain. And when I don't get more comfort, less pain, I'm not surprised that I'm not real joyful. But Paul says he's learned how to want things that give him joy that are transcendent of his circumstances. He knows how to desire what God wants to turn out. And we're obsessed with this idea of turned out. We say, hey, hey, how did things turn out after last week you shared at small group such and such? Turned out, I'm glad I broke up with her. It turns out I didn't want that job anyway. So Paul's going to give us three turnouts, three, three ways to think about what turns out, to get our heart wanting what God wants turned out so that we can have the joy of seeing that happen. Let's look at the first one together in the passage. We're in Philippians chapter 1. Paul's going to tell us that he wants to expand God's good news more than he wants to shrink his bad news. And because he wants to expand God's good news, even if his circumstances get worse, But if they actually produce an environment to increase the proclamation of God's good news, he is joy. And I'm immediately convicted because I would rather shrink my bad news than expand his good news, right? Which is why I don't have a lot of joy when my bad news grows or my good news shrinks. But Paul says the first thing I wanted turned out is I wanted his good news to expand more than I want my bad news to shrink. Here's how he says it in the first part of the verse. I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me, what are those things? He's been imprisoned, he's been beaten, he's been bit by snake, like that will happen later. He, he's been uh, shipwrecked. Terrible things have happened to him. And he just says things. Oh, you know, these things that have happened to me have actually, here's the phrase, turned out. You know, all those things, all those beatings and stonings, you know, those things. It turns out they turned out. What do you mean they turned out? Yeah, they turned out. Well, what happened? How did it turn out? He goes, well, it turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. The good news is God used those circumstances to increase his good news. It turned out. And so I have so much joy that God used this to turn out his message. 
And he goes on, he says, so that it, the gospel, has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. As it turns out, that being chained to a Roman guard has been the best thing God could do for me. What? Yeah, because I thought to myself, I've got a captive audience. All I do all day long is share with him the hope of Christ, what God did in my life. And here's what I know. If I can convert and persuade this guy, they're going to change the guard. And I'll get a new one. And that guy who I convert will go into a legion of soldiers and he'll share the story. And then that, 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 that legion will be transferred around the countryside and the whole message of Christ will spread around the world from right here in my prison cell. Can you believe it? And then I'll get another one. Hey, how are you? And I'll start it all over again. Because what he wanted turned out was the spread of God's good news more than shrinking his own bad news. And here in the passage, he gives us two things in verse 13 and 14 that show how this happened. He says, it turns out that my circumstances allowed the unconvinced to find evidence. He says, it became evident to the palace guard and to all the rest, all those unconvinced. It became evident that if I could find joy in this circumstance, they'd never seen somebody in a prison cell singing to God. And that became evidence that something about this is real. Something about this is authentic. And as followers of Christ, we need to know how to dialogue with the unconvinced. Yeah, we need to show reasons why the Bible is historically accurate. We need to be able to answer questions of the problem of evil. But you know what the evidence people are really looking for is? Is it real? The best evidence we represent to our friends who are unconvinced is how we live out this life in the midst of difficulty. That is going to be so striking and so attractive to those who are unconvinced. Which means the stakes are so high when you're going through difficulty. The stakes are so high because your friends, your neighbors are watching you just like the palace guard was watching Paul. And God is going to use you for the furtherance of the gospel, depending on how you interact with God in your current circumstances. But it's not just the unconvinced, Paul says. It also turns out that the convinced, the brethren, they got more confidence finding out about what's going on with me. See, having become confident by my chains are much more bold. Wow, if God can show up in Paul's life in prison, if Paul can go from the upper crust to the latrine and still be joyful maybe god could do that in my life if he can find joy in those circumstances maybe i can find joy in my circumstances if he can find comfort and peace there maybe i can find comfort and peace here see how you interact in your current circumstances gives evidence to the unconvinced and boldness to the convinced and it turns out that the gospel goes forth in people's hearts, both the convinced and unconvinced. And that's why the stakes are so high as to how you and I interact with difficult circumstances. Many of us know the story of Elizabeth Elliot. Her husband Jim was killed going over to Ecuador and trying to share the gospel with a particular tribe. And they met his training of years in preparing to go in to be a missionary by killing him almost instantly. Well, then his wife, Elizabeth, did not run back to hide in the States. She did not run back to the safety of America. She continued 
to share the gospel, despite the tribe had killed her husband. And the tribe was so struck that a woman would continue to love them and talk about the forgiveness of God despite losing a husband that they killed, that that became the catalyst. That became the catalyst to the gospel spreading. But I was reminded, I was talking with Doug Daly's wife, Patty, about a year ago, and she shared about a message that uh, Elizabeth Elliot had given. And one of her messages was, imagine this, that one day we'll stand before the throne room of God. And the accuser will come out and he will accuse God of not being good, not being good, not being good, not being good. And each one of us in our unique challenges and our unique difficulties will be a witness. And we will stand before the throne room and say, God is good. Because I was in that circumstance and God showed himself to be real. Yeah, but God's not good for giving cancer. And you'll be the one that stands up and says, I had cancer. And God demonstrated his goodness in the midst of it. Yeah, yeah, but what about abuse? Hey, I was the one who was abused and God covered my shame. Which means each one of us, whatever we're going through, whatever we will go through, the stakes are eternal. We are going to be the manifest witness, not only on this earth, but in eternity, Elizabeth says, to the goodness of God. It turns out that where you're at right now can further the gospel. Well, Paul continues, he said there's a second turns out, and I almost didn't put this one in because it's so convicting. It turns out, Paul says, that I want life. To expand my reliance on God more than I want God to expand my reliance on life. You see, when you look at my prayers and maybe your prayers, my prayers look like this. God, expand my reliance on life. Make life more comfortable. Make life more good. Make life easier. God, I pray, pray, pray that you'd make life so good that I could rely on it. Paul says that's not how you find joy. If you want to find joy, you've got to start wanting something different. God, I want you to use life to expand my reliance on you, whatever it takes. Yeah, I don't want to pray like that. But that's how Paul, Paul found joy. Because when you begin to pray like this, God, use whatever it is in my life, in my marriage, in my character, in my business, in my community. Use whatever it is in my past or future organize it to make me more and more reliant on you. And you're going to find a lot of joy. Because the harder it gets, you're going to be more and more reliant on God. Because reliance leads to confidence. And that's exactly what he says. Look at the verse. So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Now, if your chains are in Christ, which one's bigger? You don't put an elephant in a microwave, right? Because the microwave is too small for the elephant. You don't drive a semi-truck through your living room. When he says, I put my chains, my difficulties in Christ, he is acknowledging that my circumstances, my difficulties in this life are smaller than my view of Christ. Therefore, Christ is so big that he eats it up. I give him my bad circumstances, he eats it up and gives me joy. I grab these difficulties and I hand it to him and he chews it up and he gives me more comfort. And my, my expansion and understanding of God gets bigger and bigger and bigger as I put my difficulties into Christ. Now, did Christ get bigger? No. But your understanding of him gets bigger. And if you will take your circumstances, your chains, your difficulties, and put them in Christ, 
you will continue to expand your reliance on God and you will see him bigger and bigger to the point at which you realize that death is swallowed up in victory. What happens when you swallow something up? You get bigger. And when Christ came and swallowed up death, he became bigger. He became the triumphant champion. And that's what can happen in your life. Because more reliance leads to more confidence. And when you put your chains in Christ, the brethren of the Lord, having become confident by my chains, and not only confident, but much more bold to speak the word of God without fear. Now, what are they confident of? Well, all we've got to do is go back a few verses. Whenever you see a verse like that, see if that word is used in the passage already. And sure enough, we go back about seven verses. In verse 6, it says, here's what you can be confident of. Being confident of this very thing. That he who began a good work in you will bring it about to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You can know that whatever you go through, God will confidently use it to increase your reliance on him and make you more like Jesus. You can know that for sure. That's a guarantee when you put your chains in Christ. More than that, though, you will be much more bold. Not just more bold. You'll be muchly, much more bold. Because whatever comes at you, Christ is going to eat it up. Whatever comes at you, you're going to put it in Christ. So you're going to be muchly, much, much more bold. And increasingly fearless. I think many times when we come to dealing with circumstances, if you're like me, I always turn to my kids and I'll say something like this. You need to be happier with your life. There's little kids in China who don't get to eat like this. You need to be happier. Like, you know how good you have it? And that speech, oh, it impacts my kids so deeply. I mean, it must last at least 12 seconds, that, the impact. And I think that's because that's the mindset we bring to circumstances. We should be happy with how good we have it. And realize that other people have it worse. But that does not sustain joy. It's like a Dr. Seuss, uh, one of my favorite Dr. Seusses, sort of appeals to this. When you think things are bad, when you feel sour and blue, when you start to get mad, you should do what I do. Just tell yourself, Ducky, you're really quite lucky. Some people are much more. So ever so much more. So muchly much, much more unlucky than you. You think they work you too hard? <laughs> think of poor Ellie Snard. He's got to mow grass in his uncle's backyard. And it's quick-growing grass. So the faster he, he mows it, the faster he grows it. And all that his stingy old uncle will pay for shoving the mower around in the hay is the piffless pay of two ducals a day. And Allie can't live on such piffless pay. That is not the muchly much more boldness Paul's talking about. Comparing your circumstances to others. Paul is saying, I want to talk about a boldness that you can have when you have the worst circumstances. When you are Ali Snard. When you are in prison. When you are impoverished. When you're being attacked. When you're being maligned. How can you have muchly, much more boldness and fearlessness there? He says, you say, I want life to increase my reliance on God. And I'm in a perfect place to be more reliant on God. And I have joy. Maybe you read the story of the book about Elizabeth Smart. She was a 14-year-old who was attacked, kidnapped by a man and his wife. She tells her story that in the midst of this brutal kidnapping and being attacked and, and violated daily, that the man would continue to come to her and say, you should be grateful. God has told me to do this to you. And she said, as horrific as those circumstances were, she kept attacking that lie. She kept saying to herself, my faith in a heavenly father who is good would not say this. And she kept coming against the lies. 
And she says in her book that she would not want this circumstance on her worst enemy, but that she had confidence then and now, having been rescued, that God could make her reliance on him as a good, loving father even more real in the midst of that circumstance. And God has brought good out of that evil circumstance. Wow. Do you see how much more powerful and real that is than just comparing your life to Ali Snard? For Paul to go from the upper crust to the outhouse and say in the outhouse I found more joy than I ever had in the elite circles I lived in is striking. It's powerful. And it comes from the second turnout. It turns out I want life to make me more reliant on God more than I want God to make me more reliant on life. Well, he's got a third turnout. It turns out that I want Christ's influence expanded regardless of the motives. You see, while he's in prison, several other people are saying, hey, now Paul's in prison. We can build a bigger church than he has. Now that he's not out there evangelizing, maybe we could have a bigger church. In fact, we'll show Paul that we didn't need him anyway. So here's what happens. And apparently somebody has written to Paul to tell him that this is going on. So Paul's responding to all the folks who are saying bad things about him, maligning his character, uh, trying to build a bigger following than his. And whenever you're reading a passage, one way to discover what it's primarily about is to look for phrases that are repeated, especially with Paul. And so in this case, I've highlighted in yellow, his main point is that what? He wants to preach Christ. He wants to preach Christ. He wants to make sure that Christ is preached. So his joy is, I want Christ's influence expanded. That's where I find joy. If I see Christ's message expanding, I smile. So that's what he wants turned out. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and strife. There are some people who are envious of me. Paul has a bigger following than me. Oh, i got to go big, get a big following. Come on, follow me, follow me. What's, what's our numbers? What's our numbers? Oh, oh, we're beating Paul. We're beating Paul. Now, some people are preaching out of strife. Paul's wrong. Paul is wrong about the message. Follow us. We're the real church. He's not the real church. You know what, you know what Paul believes? He believes that Adam and Eve had a belly button. Yeah, that's right. He's one of the navalites. That's what he is. One of those navalites. We don't believe that Adam and Eve had a belly button. Come with us. Strife. We're the real church. He says, but some people are out there preaching from goodwill. Now, the former preach Christ, truly, it's from selfish ambition. It's the televangelists of the day. They're preaching Christ to get money out of it. The Lord wants to bless you. Put your hand on the screen and send me $1,000. So it was even going on back then. They're not sincere, supposing to add affliction to my chains. They think that they're going to make it miserable. I'm in chains thinking, oh, they're out there making money off this, and I'm impoverished. But the latter, there's still a group out there preaching out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the true message of the gospel. What then? How how am I going to respond to this? How am I going to respond to all this tension, all this difficulty, all this pressure and strife? What then? Only that. In every way, whether in pretense or truth, I prefer truth, but in every way, I just want Christ to be preached. And so in this, I rejoice. Yes. Yes, in that I will rejoice. I mean, easily he could build a defense as to why he's being wronged, why what's happening is wrong. But it turns out, he wants Christ to be preached. And he finds joy in that. Because it wasn't about increasing his reputation. It was about increasing God's reputation. 
And that is where he found the joy. And that's why as a church, we are committed to preaching Christ in every way. Now, we try and stay away from the envy ways and the strife ways and the selfish ways. But it says, Paul says, in every way, use whatever methods you can. Whatever godly methods you can. Which is why we're constantly changing teaching methods and, 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 and series titles and, and, and approaches and ministry approaches. Because the methods always change. But the message doesn't. And part of us reaching the unconvinced, equipping the convinced, is doing exactly that. In every way, Christ will be preached. And that's why we rejoice. So what is it that you and I want turned out? Because our joy in what turns out is determined by what we want turned out. So a little test for yourself is, what makes you the most stressed? What is it that makes you the most angry? What is it that makes you the most fearful? It's probable that whatever those things are, whatever comes to your mind when I say that, is the thing you want more than being reliant on God. It's probably something good, right? I want a happy marriage. I want obedient kids. I want nice circumstances. I want work to go well. Those are all good things. But do you want it more than you want to be reliant on God? When we start to want what He wants turned out, we find the joy of what does turn out. So I'm making lunch chopping away at this onion. I got some refried beans going. I'm making some fantastic Mexican. The doorbell rings. As I'm heading over that direction, let me pause the story there and back up a little bit further. About 10 years ago, my wife came home from a Bible study. I encourage you, don't send your wife to Bible studies. And she came home with a sense that God was telling us we should adopt. And uh, I sensed that God was telling her she should adopt but maybe not me, because I was weighing the cost of a comfortable life, and I was weighing the cost of it, and by the time we made a decision to look into it, my kids were 8 and 10, and we were close enough that we could actually see empty nest. I got married when I was 21, so it was real early to have empty nest. It was wonderful. I could see it. To start over with diapers, to start over with difficulties, to start off with, with just all that stuff I'd been through it. Do we really want to start over? Well, we kept praying about it sense that God was calling us to, to adopt. And so we adopted Quinn. And, and not only did we have diapers, and, but we had other things that we hadn't signed up for with autism, with missing parts of brains, with verbal skills in the one percentile. Incredible difficulty. Things that I, I wouldn't have chosen by my own accord. So how would we find joy in the midst of this? So that is the backdrop. Quinn's now four and a half the doorbell rings. I, I come to the door, not realizing I still have the knife in my hand. Two police officers step into our door. It's like my wife opened the door with them. Hey, what's going on? Uh, you guys called 911? I don't think so. Uh, did you call 911, honey? She said, no, I didn't call 911. I said, well, I didn't call 911. And I said, well, it, was, it, was a, it sounded like a, a baby on the phone. I'm like, oh, Quinn called 911. 
He can't talk more than one word, but he called 911. So we had a good laugh. We thanked the, uh, uh, hey, thanks so much. Appreciate you coming over here and, and, and taking care of everything. And I really appreciate you. Really appreciate you. And uh, thanks so much. And so they headed out the door. They closed the door. And Beth said, do you realize you have a knife in your hand? I said, I was protecting our constitutional rights. That's what I was doing, honey. I had no idea I had this knife in my hand. And we just had the best laugh. And these are the little things that, you know, you'd never experience except that we've been through difficulty. And with a son that has a 1% verbal skills where you have to prompt every single word, where the, the joys we experience are so much more tender and so much more real. That same day, I was playing blockus with my 16-year-old, and um, I'm sure I was winning. That's how I recall the story. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I heard something. And I'm like, shh, shh, turn off the TV. We turn off the TV, and my son, Quinn, is in the corner. And... Uh, He's singing. I've never heard him sing before. And he, he's doing this. Pada, round, round. He's singing Pada Cake. And so I get out the camera. I'm like, shh. Who knows? It's going to last a second or two seconds. We're videotaping this thing. And oh, the joy. My daughter's excited about it. I'm excited about it. And we are experiencing so much. My wife comes home from practice because she sang this morning. I'm like, look, Quinn's singing. And all oh, the joy we experience. Now, four and a half with my other two, I didn't have that joy. If they were only saying one word by then, I'd be like, you know, it's time for you to grow up. It's time for you to say a lot more than that. In fact, still when I meet the four, four and a half year old now, that sort of this grief comes over me when I'm reminded just how far below standards he is. But all oh, the joy, the joy that we experience in seeing how God can work in the midst of difficulty and how these circumstances have made our family so much more selfless, so much more aware of the needs of others we wouldn't have seen before, so much more reliant on God. And so it turns out that when you want reliance on God turned out, when you want His gospel proclaimed, when you want Him preached, you can find joy in any circumstance. So this year, I want to I encourage you to expand Expand your reliance on God. Expand your desire to have His message go forth. His good news get bigger more than you want your bad news to get smaller. Expand your desire to have Him preached and communicated in every circumstance in your life. And maybe, maybe you'll be able to experience what we heard about about a month ago. Every Tuesday we get together as a staff and we share stories where God's at work around us. One of our pastors had called somebody in the church who had just found out they had a brain tumor and recalled the conversation to us. So I heard you got a brain tumor. Wow, that must be tough. What's going on? And the teenager responded, Yeah, I've got a brain tumor. But the one thing I know for sure is it's going to help me rely on God an awful lot more than I have been. Wow. Wow. That's what I want in my heart. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> turns out we do want you more than we want anything, but we confess that that isn't often how we live. We desire so many things that we turn into idols and replacements for you more than you. God, make us reliant on you. Expand our understanding of who you are. Expand our ability to place our difficulties into you, that you may be bigger and bigger, more and more glorious, more and more majestic. In Jesus' name. And Jesus, you know, if you want to know how to experience more joy this year, 
One of the things that we are setting up, we have more small group offerings we've ever had before to help you get into the Bible, understand, connect with other people to help you through difficulties. So I want to show you a quick video clip as we close of just the different opportunities. We have men's groups this year. We have women's groups. We have couples groups. We even have some fast track groups and some story form life. So if you want to get connected, watch this quick video, and then there's going to be sign-ups out by the fireplace. Let's watch. It's the quickest way to understand the greatest story ever told. It comes with science experiments, illusions, the unexpected drawings. You never know what you're going to get. How to face adversity. How to trust God. How to stop running from God. How to never give in. Join me for Fast Track. The quickest way to understand the greatest story ever told. So wherever you are in your spiritual life, we want to help you get into the Bible this year. Story Form Life, if you've never engaged in studying the Bible with Jewish Midrash, fantastic experience. Uh, I did it last year. Starting Point, great place for a starting point of getting into the Bible for the first time, connecting with people beyond the Sunday morning experience. Fast Track Bible, you'll go through the entire Bible in eight weeks. More than that, you'll get a chance to connect with other couples, other families, get to know some folks as well. And then, uh, what else? Women's group sign-ups, and then men's groups are starting back up again as well. So out by the fireplace or sign-ups, make this new year a year of joy and a chance to connect with the Word. We'll see you all next week for Philippians Part 3. Thanks again.